Welcome to a News Laundry podcast. This is Global Summits. Where are we going? Hi, I'm Biraj Swain and this is News Laundry podcast. Global Summits. Where are we going? Three years, 17 goals, 169 targets, 193 countries and 160 heads of states at New York. for the mother of all summits the united nations sdg sustainable development goals summit on the occasion of the 78th general assembly since we also triggered intersection of literature and human development in the last episode citing charles dickens tale of two cities today we invoke another classical great anna karenina by leo tolstoy all happy families are alike while every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way Yes, it is the big one today. We are taking stock of the SDG summit and India's pitch and participation at the SDGs. For once, there is a deal. So vast, so all-encompassing, it is the proverbial response to the unhappy families of Anna Karenina. An agenda on everything, no matter how different. Unlike its predecessors, MDGs, it is not meant for the poor countries only, co-financed by the rich countries. Anyway, After the 2008 post-meltdown world, even the, that rich, poor country's textbook definition is arcane. In today's episode, we will be discussing the SDG summit, not just the summit and the adoption of the goals, but also the goals themselves and what they hold for us and our future and our children's future. We shall also push our panelists to pick their favorite ones. India's pitch for UN reforms, claiming to comply with the SDGs and reiterating the common but differentiated responsibility. The over-presence of private sector, is that making the global public good, i.e. the United Nations a compromised entity? Financing, where is the money? And finally, road ahead. The road to hell is paved with, nah. Let's hear that from our experts. We are not discussing the Pope's visit, his speech at the US Congress and the UN, and his fantastic move of choosing a meal with the homeless and the hungry over the US Congress delegates. Well, because that would call for one whole dedicated episode. We have a kick-ass panel to discuss this and take stock. Before I bring in the panelists, please remember programs like this are possible because of independent media. When corporates pay, corporates' agenda is served. When people pay, your agenda is served. Please support News Laundry. Please support independent media. Help us to keep news free. Now let's listen to some highlights first. After more than two years of consultation and planning, at 4.56 p.m. New York time on 25th September 2015, The United Nations General Assembly formally adopted the Sustainable Development Goals or the Global Goals. New goals expected to shape political policy worldwide for the next 15 years. At heart are the agenda of ending poverty, tackling inequality and climate change. Some key highlights. 1. Agenda consists of 17 goals and 169 targets to end poverty and hunger by 2030. 2. Unlike the Millennium Development Goals, the SDGs are universal, applicable to both poor and rich countries. 3. The Pope spoke out on environmental issues in opening the session for the summit, exhorting the rich nations to respect their debt to the weak and the poor and the development countries, both in curtailing consumption and financing climate adaptation. 4. Prime Minister Narendra Modi made an 18-minute address in the same session highlighting India's domestic policies completely in sync with the global goals. 
He listed the Indian schemes of financial inclusion, education and skill development, direct benefit transfer and pension schemes for the vulnerable among the initiatives that would promote sustainable development in India. He also emphasized the need for UN reforms to reflect the realities of the current world order, including expansion of the Security Council and permanent membership of the Council. He also called for the need for common but differentiated responsibility for the rich nations to live up to their commitment for climate adaptation. Amid much fanfare with Shakira's song and Richard Curtis's project Everyone, the SDGs were launched for popularizing among the public too. Even British Secret Service agent James Bond, that is Daniel Craig, attended the UN summit as brand ambassador against explosive hazards and mines. Before I bring in the panelists, full disclosure, my trip to New York was sponsored by UN Women to attend the Sustainable Development Goals Summit and the 78th UN General Assembly during the week of 28th to 27th September. We have with us some of the leading voices, not just of India, but globally, who were present at New York for the UN Summit. And better still, we have someone who shaped these global goals and document in his avatar as bureaucrat not so long ago. Yes, I did not deliver on the promised episode from the Big Apple because I'm not as smart as our production team when it comes to technology and recording. But we are compensating for it with a kick-ass panel. We have with us Samir Saran, Vice President, Observer Research Foundation, a leading think tank of India with affiliations with the Reliance Group. Welcome to the show, Samir. Thank you. Bidisha Pillai, Director, Policy Advocacy and Campaign, Save the Children India, a leading non-profit for children. Full disclosure again, her organization is the collaborator of the Global Summit Series. Welcome, Bidisha. Thank you so much, Biraj. Amitabh Behar, Executive Director, National Foundation for India and Co-Chair, Global Call to Action Against Poverty. Welcome, Amitabh. Thanks, Viraj. And saving the best for the last, career bureaucrat, India's chief climate negotiator at Rio 92 and ex-special advisor to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the UN mechanism dedicated to climate negotiations, Mr. Mukul Sanwal. His book, The World's Search for Sustainable Development, a perspective from Global South, has just hit the stands. We shall plug the blurb too as the explainer. Please grab your copy. Welcome, Mr. Sanwal. Thank you. Amitav. Monitoring of SDGs has been one of your passion project. You actually mainstreamed it in Indian civil society. You've been also part of the consultations of formulation of SDGs too. You've also challenged bitterly every time there was talk of reducing the SDGs number from 17 to 10 or 12 and make it more manageable. In two minutes, tell our listeners the core agenda of this global script and do you have any favorites of the 17 goals? Okay, so this I must say is uh far more ambitious than the MDGs. This does attempt to go beyond a limited human development and poverty agenda. It has brought in economic development, economic growth, along with environment. So that's certainly a big jump from the previous agenda. However, let me also say that we've missed completely the political agenda. And there are certain references to uh, issues of um, rule of law, of governance reforms, but they're fairly inadequate. The big, I think, win is that at least civil society has been able to push the agenda of inequality as a uh, central piece of, of the entire SDG uh, document. You have a dedicated goal for that. So that certainly is one of my favorites. Uh, and uh, But I, let me also say that we are 
also disappointed. At one level, we are excited that this is a more ambitious agenda, but this is not transformative enough. This has not looked at the root causes of poverty, and it has not adequately shifted the debate from a extreme poverty lens to what we have been constantly saying: the lens should be of dignity and justice. Vidisha, I know the child and the family is at the heart of many of these goals. Does Safe play favorites? Do you have any favorites, and what are your initial reactions? I think, like Amitabh, what I'm going to do is echo the fact, and something that we had pushed for uh, considerably was uh, the focus on the poorest and the most marginalized. Um, Safe's agenda is aligned very much along three priorities, which is child survival, so no child dying for preventable causes, which includes health, nutrition, water, sanitation. And we're very pleased that there's this time a separate goal on water and sanitation. Uh, educating all children, access to quality education, which was a goal in the previous MDGs and continues to be a goal now. But the whole aspect of quality, I think, has to be uh, focused on and looked at. And then the focus on child protection and protecting children from violence which I think there's no standalone goal for. So while you have the gender goal, I think, I think the missed opportunity for us is the fact that when we look at children's uh, protection, when we look at issues of trafficking, et cetera, they kind of spread across different goals. And uh, in, in some ways, they just boil down to indicators which may be missed. So that's a fear for us. I think going forward, what we'd really like to see is that um, the goals do deliver for the poorest, that we're able to track the progress that we're making. And in 2030, the world is a far, far better place for our children than it is currently. Samir. Your take. Were you expecting the document will go for final reopening and renegotiations and clauses like it happened in the FFT? And what is your initial reactions? No, I think the document pretty much traversed an expected path in the last six months. The document, like um, Amitabh mentioned, is certainly uh, expansive. I'm not certain it is ambitious enough. I think they have touched on a large number of issues, and 169 is a number that speaks about that. But like Amitabh also mentioned, they have not necessarily drilled down into some key elements that can bring the equity and poverty alleviation uh, objectives that the document, uh, in a sense, focuses on. Uh, one of the key issues around that has to be uh, the plight and the future and the agency given to the largest minority in the world, which are women. Uh, it has to be uh, to protect and serve uh, the most vulnerable in the world, which are children. And it has to be through processes which are plural. And I think the document has shied away from really discussing some of the most democratic uh, uh, fundamentals that, must, that any such global agreement must espouse. And let me start at a macro level, a very small point here. I think there is a fundamental structural issue with a document like this. In most parts of our uh, of the developing world, the global south, uh, 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 something that Mr. Sanwal has covered in his book, a feature of our current transition shows that there is a demand, and certainly there is a process underway at different rates of deepening democracy in many of these countries, including India. Whether we like it or not, our democracy today is far deeper than it was 20 years ago. We may not like the democratic outcomes, that is our uh, preference, but today the third tier is being empowered like never before. Civil society is more active like never before and more voices are joining policy debates. At that moment, we are ceding the right to decide to a supranational framework where many of these voices don't have access to. 
So in many ways, even as democracy is deepening to, to, to take charge of their own um, lives, we are taking away the right to decide and putting it in the soup. And I think this is this kind of shines through. And therefore, this document will is necessarily a least common denominator in many areas, environment being one of them. So while it has spoken about environment, eventually it had to reconcile with the fundamental realities of deep north-south divide on how do we treat environment. But when you say the supranational um, Samir, isn't it also the fact that this was the most uh, unprecedentedly consultative process ever for three years? And even Amitabh's been part of many of those iterative consultations, open working groups, thematic sessions, so, civil society no, no, no. I, consultations. I have, I, I, have no, I have no hesitation in saying this has been a more multi-stakeholder driven process than ever before. All I want to say is that still the stakeholders who were sitting in the room are not necessarily representative of those that this document seeks to serve. So I may be a civil society member, but I am certainly not the beneficiary of this document or a, or a beneficiary of the process that this document seeks to uh, unleash in many parts of the world. I was sitting in those uh, uh, conversations as well. So I'm not saying that multi that it has not been plural. Uh, and I'm not saying that um, uh, you know good should yeah, uh, good should not be a uh, enemy of the perfect. And so yeah. I'm not I'm not going into that debate at all. All I'm trying to say is that fundamentally, if I'm giving Kerala the right or a district in Kerala the right to decide on how they want to organize education, healthcare, roads, transports, infrastructure, etc., etc., I am now taking away that right by saying, unfortunately, I am circumscribing your ability to decide based on how we will treat wheat production. Uh, how we will treat cement and steel taxation, how we will treat intellectual property and copyrights, how we will conduct certain trade elements decided by uh, elite group who are crowded by civil society, but most of the civil society belong to the same Wilsonian school of uh, which are self-validating and belonging to going to the same universities, colleges. Some of them join the private sector, some of, join, some of them join the, the think tanks and NGOs, and most of them sit in the bureaucracy. So uh, it is the same pool of people wearing different hats, discussing issues that are going to actually affect 99% of the world who is not really reflected there. So, Mr. Sanwal, do you agree that sovereignty is being ceded out to the supranational processes? What is your take on the SDG summit and the outcome document? You see, when, you, <clears throat> when governments agreed to have a United Nations, they agreed to cede some sovereignty. The question was to what extent, in what manner, and how does it affect individual countries? Now, I think the discussion that we are having here and that took place in New York was comparing the SDGs with the Millennium Development Goals, the process for example. The Millennium Development Goals were cooked up in the basement of the Secretariat with no input from anybody, not even the governments or civil society. It was the United Nations civil servants who, who crafted this together, put it together, and the governments endorsed it. Now, there is no denying the fact that this was, this was the more consultative process, deliberately organized by the United Nations, as some kind of a bottom-up process to get the different views together. The key point which I hear Samir saying is that People participated, made their inputs, but what was reflected in the final document was a watered-down version of, you can call it the least common denominator, or you can say it was not only that it, this happened in different stages, the kind of goals that were agreed to, a big laundry list, and then the targets that emerged to monitor those goals were themselves negotiated and watered down in some senses. For example, my favorite is consumption and production patterns. In 1992, the word does not figure. The entire text of Agenda 21 
has this in a very benign manner. It first emerged in an operative sense in the World Summit on Sustainable Development in 2002. And this was the last item to be agreed. This was so hotly debated that this was the last item to be agreed. And in what manner? The agreement was only on a program for sustainable consumption production and that too at the regional level. There was no global consensus that sustainable consumption and production should be a global issue. This time you find it is there. And when you look at the way this, this item was evolved or has been, uh, has, has takes shape, finally takes shape in the document, you can see that it does not really focus on consumption uh, patterns. It gets mixed up with a number of other things and there is the targets are really not looking at lifestyles. That is why Prime Minister Modi's insistence and Premier Xi's insistence on bringing in lifestyles in the climate discussion become important. So that's one part of it. The other part of it is that this is, these are, a, uh, if you say they are laundry lists, but they are also priorities. Now they, these global priorities then come down to the national level to shape national priorities. Already you have Bill and Melinda Gates coming and telling us, let's pick on this subject or pick on that subject. Now what happens in that is that the linkages between these aspects get kind of diluted. So we have to decide, each country in that sense, that how are we going to organize ourselves to implement these sustainable development goals? Are we going to take a territorial perspective or looking around at the panchayat and saying, hey, why don't you mix this together and implement it? Or are we going to take a sectoral view with some person sitting in New Delhi telling people what to do? But that's a national aspect. But what they have done is they have brought together certain uh, goals. Actually, that's a perfect segue for our next question. That is, what is the next step, i.e. localizing it and bringing in probably the lost ground that was the ceded sovereignty. And if we are saying the theater of action is the local government level, the district and the panchayat, again, bringing them to the forefront to co-design co what is going to be happening in the next 15 years? How do we go Ex forward? Exactly, because the same debate that we are having vis-a-vis -vis the United Nations it's actually taking place within the country, at home. at home. What is the role of the municipal bodies, for example? If urbanization is going to take place in a big way, the GDP generated by Mumbai, the tax and the, the kind of human population that is coming in, middle class as well as the slums, do they need to be a separate tier? China has that. So, uh, 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 and what about the panchayats? We have, we have a constitutional amendment. Is it being implemented? Again, the same discussion takes place. The, the, uh, the, the balance of power between the ministers in the provincial government and the Zila Parishad head or the Panchayat head. Samir? No, so, you know, let me just jump in. I think this is, a, this is the right point to inject a certain degree of ambition into the document. We've been critical that we have diluted some of our key objectives because we had to arrive at a global consensus. consensus. Uh, yet, we have identified priority areas. And in, a, in some ways, even Amitabh's uh, uh, you know, key focus area, which is around rule of law and justice, is mentioned. Now, at the national level, we can be far more ambitious with all of these. So for me, the success of SDGs or uh, national development goals has to be transformative democracy. I, a problem with democracy cannot be democracy. It has to be more democracy. You know, the, 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 the pro this problem solving in democracy is more democracy, not less democracy. And I think that is the, um, uh, in many ways, a route available to us. And just three actors now need to be added in. And I think they are, for me, and I mentioned this in my interaction at, in New York, that there are three stakeholders who are missing, who have not bought into the document. And I mentioned it there that they are aware of the document, they will gain the document, 
they will make money out of the document but they are still not why don't you name them the first is the private sector the banks i don't think the banks that work out of london new york paris and through the basel arrangement are necessarily going to change the banking norms and also our mahalakshmi avenue in bombay uh, I, mumbai I, I, i think they have far lesser agency because they in a sense reflect what uh, uh, basel decides so i think first of all uh, basel 3 may have to be rewritten to serve your uh, sdgs and climate objectives so since so that, this is an explainer series why don't you tell our listeners what is the basel agreement so, so for example the the whole idea was post the meltdown since you mentioned the meltdown the idea was that we need to be far more careful and prudential norms of banking were strengthened which basically meant that many banks uh, the, that the chief banking uh, central bankers agreed that they will set certain amount of uh, sectoral limits you cannot expose your bank to more, uh, to a certain sector more than a certain percentage of your lending which means that infrastructure lending which most of us require the most is limited to a very small part of lending uh, so much so that in many parts of the world setting up a retail store is cheaper than setting up a infrastructure project so this is the perversion of the current banking law so that is one simple explanation what basel does what basel does is that india can say i want to increase my green energy five times like it has done in its indc uh, two days ago one and a half days ago but uh, it, for that it needs global financial flows to allow that to happen so basel 3 will have to be reimagined in line with what we want to achieve both under this document and what we sign in paris that is one the second actor Uh, which we have not been able to uh, make a co-owner of this document is the innovation lens innovation industry they see this as a great means of creating technologies and products but i don't necessarily see them as evangelists who will give that technology and products uh, for the bottom of pyramid needs under Because the present arrangement under the present arrangement so th- this is the time between now and t- 2020 when the successor to the uh, 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 the, the kyoto protocol process will kick into place we have a challenge of making the innovation industry far more responsive to the global agenda so i think that is the second actor who is missing the innovation industry because they see this as a great gaming exercise where they can look at your objectives create products and make millions out of it and the startups third? around the world are a demonstration of that they are leveraging on this particular ambition the third is what i call people on the street this conversation is happening at a level where the where the street is not involved in policy so how are you going to how are you going to sell these um, 169 you know i i was joking i jokingly refer to the sdgs another great classic let me go since you started with the classic let me go to the old testament another great classic mm-hmm. uh, and you know you, if you read about the noah's ark get get on board and save your lives this sdg is a similar document sign on and save your soul so it's the new noah's ark of the 21st century and this noah's ark now needs to uh, accommodate welcome the street or as the guardian calls it an attempt to buy a conscience however this is a perfect segue to go to the people who are actually working with the people in the street and who've been also champion of bringing their voices to the new york lobby amitav and vidisha amitav you go first okay so you know this is a fascinating conversation sitting in this room we are now kind of saying that the sdgs lack ambition this is what the civil society has been saying for a while but if you had heard the leaders of of different countries sitting in the un i think everybody including our prime minister said that this is probably the most transformative 
global agenda that we've been able that to That was set. a Rajshree film production. We all are loving our family. <laughs> so, so pos goody possibly. Goody. But I think it's important to still state that, that Suraj globally... Suraj Barjiyate production. Globally, By the way, there's a film coming in. We should not be plugging films, but there's one Suraj Barjiyate offering, I think, in Diwali. Okay. Amitabh no, no, again. So I, I still think that we need to put our finger why we in this room are feeling that this is not ambitious enough. Uh, I think that's a critical question. Is it a feeling of civil society groups? Is it a feeling in India? Is it a feeling in South? Because there is also a significant transformative potential. I did critique the SDGs, but there is a significant transformative potential to talk of inequality, to talk of uh, consumption patterns. That's a big jump from what we had in the uh, SDGs. You have a s dedicated goal on means of implementation, so that's, that's also fairly big. I also wanted to go back on, on Samir's point. You know, I was too tempted to interject then, but I, I have some patience. So I, I would, you know, I fundamentally disagree with the point that Samir is making. Uh, I completely agree with the basic premise that you need more democracy. Uh, however, I think there are certain core universal values and we need to push those core universal values. I don't, you know, initially when I heard Samir with my post-colonial sensibilities, I felt very excited about what you're saying. But I do think that if in 60, 70 years of time, in this country or globally, if we have not been able to achieve certain universal standards, there is a need for uh, some universal goal setting. And, and I think that's fairly critical in an extremely globalized world. So I like what you're saying, Samir, but I don't think that the autonomy is either at the panchayat level or at the municipal level or at the state level. It is a globalized world we live in, and therefore there are certain uh, decisions and certain at least aspirations that, that have to be uh, global no, if I can just interject, just for a minute, yeah. brief interjection. Who sets those global goals? And what are those global goals? Absolutely. So far, uh, 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 so far, yeah. just one more sentence. Yeah. So far, the United Nations is only discussing part of what concerns humanity. For example, and I, I would like to elaborate that later, the entire economic agenda is outside the economic, uh, outside oh, the United Nations. Nations. It's with the Bretton Woods Institution. It is not discussed there at all. Social and economic rights are really not discussed. It's procedural and human rights. Yes, in a very big way, but a lot of the social and economic rights agenda is not discussed there in a very serious manner at all. I, I totally agree, and that's precisely why I started by critiquing SDGs. I said that global governance institutions have not been given adequate attention. They need fundamental restructuring. There's inequity, the inequity of the global uh, power structure gets reflected in the global governance architecture. All those points are absolutely fine. But just to again pick what Samir said, the, the, the best cannot be an enemy of good. Therefore, I think we need to gradually move towards a more universal agenda. And these are universal values that we are talking of. On that to just have hesitation that this is coming from a global norm setting, I would feel very uncomfortable. Today, I don't see myself just as an Indian citizen. I see myself as also as a global citizen. And, and I think it's critical for all of can us we, to... Can we also bring in so, Vidisha? So, so, yes, we are yes, bringing going, the panel. Well, you know, that, that is again the difference between MDG and SDG, because SDG includes rule of law. It does. It MDG does. did it, not. It does also. So that's bring an evolution in, the, in our thinking uh, and the global thinking of the north. Yes. But I just wanted to go back to the third point, uh, which came from this conversation, that I again think that at uh, in government of India, there's been extreme reluctance to really own the SDGs. 
I have been part of uh, at least a discussion where at least Samir and I were sitting there in which uh, the Niti Aayog, which seems to be the logical institution to well, be taking this, for, uh, yeah. anchoring the SDGs, yeah. they seemed extremely... Uh, reluctant in owning the entire SDGs. And they in fact said that uh, for us, the 12th five-year plans, 24 indicators are difficult to manage. How can we manage 169 indicators? Maybe we'll pick the 11 goals which are already part of our policy Aligned, framework. So, so there's been extreme reluctance. MEA is already saying that now they need to give the baby to the government of India, rightly so. But who's going to hold the baby and then who's going to popularize it? Who's going to take it to the state governments, to the municipal governments and certainly to the people on the street? So before you come to Vidisha, so, I was picked on twice. So let me, one, 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 one quick 30 second I, 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 have to, I have to exercise the moderator control. Thank one you. of the high point of our show is that we are breaking the menace of all male panels. I cannot <laughs> let that get hijacked. Vidisha, your take please. Thank you very much, Biraj. And just to sort of reflect on the conversation, I, I think I have to uh, agree with what everybody's saying here that what we, are, what we are calling for is essentially active citizenship. And I think the onus is frankly on all of us sitting in this room as well. It's, it's very well to say that it's a global agenda setting and development setting and we've been part of the conversations. But if we have failed to make sure that we've reflected people's voices in those conversations, then that's as much our failure as it is of the uh, global development um, sort of, you know, people who are... Who Fraternity. Are yes, absolutely. So I think we need to take that forward. I think there's a recognition in this room. There's a recognition outside this room as well that that's got to be a fundamental plank of what we do with it. Um, where we take it with the national vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, village level, panchayat level, I think we've just got to be really smart about it. I hear what Amitabh is saying, you know, that th there is going to be, and there's a concern that uh, we, because we are all going to be looking at, you know, we're looking at the SDGs as a lowest common denominator, we're going to try and do that at the national level as well. And we're going to say, let's go with what is the easiest. But I think on our part, we've probably got to be smart about it. So if we look at the Sansad Adarsh Gram Yojana, to me, it's a reflection, it's a microcosm of the SDGs coming alive in a village. And I think it is, again, up to us to see how we make it relevant at the village level, make sure that we are pushing the things that we want to push that will make it make a difference, that will not end up being just, you know, how many wells have been constructed and how many sort of roads have been built, but make it as much about the people and as much about the, uh, you know, shifting social norms, moving cultural barriers, moving some of the barriers that allow, for example, women and the most marginalized to participate in the development process. That's as much um, um, up to us, quite frankly. So for our listeners, again, since this is an explainer series, the Sansad Adarsh Gram Yojana is the parliament, the new scheme of this new government about the MPs adopting one village and converging all the development programs and demonstrating how the best, or to, to steal a phrase from Samir, how the best looks like for rest of the uh, villages to emulate. There are challenges around that also, but uh, Vidisha's point is that that could be a very good starting point, number one. The second is INDC that Samir talked about. This is the commitment that was made in the last uh, conference of parties in, uh, uh, in the uh, UN Framework for Climate Change Conference, where the national determined goals and commitments have to be done and now um, our environment minister Mr. Prakash Javadekar has committed that they will be halving the carbon emissions by 2020 as per the INDC. Um, 
there is a very rich conversation which is going on about what is exactly the theater of action and what about the ceding of sovereignty and the tyranny of global aggregators. We've been plugging one of our favorite authors, David Landau, who's been writing on what is the theater of action for progressive legislations? Harvard Law Journal, we plugged it in the first episode around financing for development, we'll replug it again. I think it's for our listeners to really be engaged on issues like this because this is also about making the balance of being, making informed choices of being the global citizen and at the same time ensuring that your democracy is as kicking and thriving as ever. Mr. Sanwal. You have been part of the process of giving a lot of this language, this documents language and the Southern perspective on the table. And you've also been passionate about how it's an unfinished and in its half agenda, the most crux and difficult agenda is still with the Bretton Woods institutions, still doesn't get talked about. India played a Herculean role in the Addis Ababa uh, Financing for Development Summit, though that's also a battle which has to be fought. So, but the other thing we also see India every time doing at the General Assembly is the permanent membership in Security Council. When was the last time India actually made an intervention without being so obsessive about the permanent membership of the Security Council? I mean, all of us, everybody around this table who was in New York took actually great pride about the uh, invocation of the common but differentiated responsibility. But at the same time, it seems every speech's de noir has always been prefixed with a permanent membership of the Security Council and not talking about the larger UN reforms, which was probably mentioned this time also. So what, was, what is your take on India's pitch and participation? Now, just before I come to that, just one last sentence. You see, the success of the United Nations model, whether you call it MDG, SDG, development decades, is that only three least, least developed countries have graduated out of the list of least developed countries over the last 50 years. And those three are? They are people who have either benefited through casinos, or some other special factor. So this is casino capitalism. In small islands, certain small islands, but only three since 1976. So there is a fundamental flaw in the model, I would say. And, and this is what we are also talking about in some senses. Now, take the case of India's uh, uh, push for the Security Council reform. You see, the, the, let's just, take, just put this in perspective. How did the Security Council emerge in 1950? The, Europe, Japan devastated with war, and China to some extent, and the rest of the world under colonial domination, the only country standing with the United States, they shaped the global agenda. Hillary Clinton made a remark, a foreign policy statement in 2011, and said that we shaped the post-world world to serve our interests. So what did they do? They then looked at a division of work. They said economic issues in the Bretton Woods, no one country, one vote. Other issues in the United Nations, one country, one vote. Emerging out of war, the Security Council to look at peace and security. But it is the only organ of the United Nations whose resolutions are binding on everybody. And there they said five countries will have a veto. But it was not, the origin of this is what, not five countries. Roosevelt wanted America, Russia, and the United Kingdom to be just three people who would run the post-World War world. Then, the United Kingdom wanted to balance the Russians and brought in the French. And then the United States wanted to balance both of these people and brought in the Chinese. So the origin of the Security Council was not who were the most powerful countries or victors, but they also looked at friends and enemies. 
almost like mutually assured destruction. Yeah, okay. So the, any reform of the Security Council is also going to look at that factor. So we must be conscious of that. China will never agree to Germany. Global Times wrote an article after Modi's statement. Japan. Uh, Japan. Global Times, the Chinese party's official mouthpiece, wrote an article after Prime Minister Modi's speech in New York and said, look, why is India linking itself with Japan? Because we are never going to agree to Japan. Similarly, people have problems with Germany. Brazil's debt has been reduced to junk status. It's not going to go there for a long time to come. So we will need to review our strategy. That is one. But the important point that I want to make is in this context is that yes, every time we have been talking about it, but for the first time we have said we want a time frame. I think that is new and that is very important. That we want a time frame. Because if you don't sort it, sort it out through mutual consultation, then my sense is and my hope is that the Prime Minister or India will start questioning the whole structure of the United Nations and say, hey, this is irrelevant, it's not going to work. You set up an organization in 1950 when 10% of the world was in the middle class. Today, nearly 50% of the world is in middle class. Two-thirds of future growth is going to take place in Asia. 75% of this population in 2050 is going to be in the middle class. Where are the Asians in this structure? He will have to raise that fundamental issue, and I think he will do it. And if he does it, it will be a very good thing for us. Now, coming back to that CBDR, again, the correct phrase is equity and common but differentiated responsibilities and capability. For some reason, we don't use the word equity. And I think we have just discussed it earlier because we may not or may or may not believe in equity. But I was glad to see that in the document we have just submitted to the Climate Change Secretariat, we have used the correct phrase and we have brought in equity. But in our common understanding, even in our discussion here, even you said CBDR, whereas the, the, the correct phrasing is equity and so equity was an important element in that framework. Now, I don't know whether this is the right time, but I think it is important to see how this evolved into the United Nations. It first came on the global agenda in a document in the Rio Declaration. I co-chaired those negotiations. I was there. This was, again, the last item to be agreed. We talked of consumption patterns, the last item. This was the last item to be agreed in the Rio Declaration. The developed countries flatly refused to accept it. We pointed out to the chairman that this phrase has been lifted verbatim from a statement of the ministers of environment of the G7 and therefore they should not be allowed to oppose it. The chairman, Tomiko, accepted that and told these people that if you oppose this, I'm going to make this statement in the plenary and say, are you going against your minister? So reluctantly it was accepted, but the United States recorded a reservation right there and then. They have never accepted it. We should be clear on that. So what has happened is, that when this was incorporated in a treaty in the climate, secretary, uh, climate treaty, the word and capabilities was added. Mm. Now that changes the original meaning completely. And then the Indians added equity. And. But it changes the concept of historical responsibility. Let us be clear about that. The United States and the G7 are right when they say that it does not, the formulation as exists under law does not point to that. And therefore, when China got into the climate change game, China said, I don't want to look back. But I will cap in 2030. And that is how I define common but differentiated. And I'm glad to see that India is also defining it in a forward-looking manner, because that makes more sense in the context that we are talking about. Now, the question is that we should not see UN Security Council reform as just one element in this entire package. We should see the reform of the United Nations 
the Security Council reform as part of the reform of the United Nations, then we will have more leverage. Because we will be right, we will have more support to say, hey, the world has changed from 1950. And these are the ways it has changed, and we need a wholesale reform. So, Amitav, uh, before that, for our listeners again, we will be having two episodes, both as a curtain raiser and as a post-summit reactive on the climate change negotiations. And the whole rationale of this entire series is because they touch our lives and our children's lives, which is why they're also interconnected, which is why it's important to also track the entire continuum. Amitav, back to you. You've been someone who's been shining a light, crying hoarse about the entire uh, disconnect between the global equity championship that India does and the cleft stick that India sits in and the intra-country inequity policy positions and programming decisions it does, it takes. So your take on our Prime Minister's speech and this mention of equity and CBDR and the whole historical perspective and where do we go from here? Okay, so on, on that, as you've already said, uh, India does take a fairly odd position according to many of us. And let me just give you a very concrete example. I do work with a lot of Dalit rights groups and we think that on affirmative action, India has probably the best set of policies, not necessarily outcomes, but in terms of policies, we are fantastic. And it cuts across from reservation to affirmative action in uh, economic arena and so on. But however, when we go to the uh, global arena, we are very shy of talking about, say, caste-based discrimination. So there is certainly a huge problem in terms of the way government of India talks of equity, particularly vis-a-vis -vis North and South, but does not talk of equity vis-a-vis excluded communities, be it be Dalits, uh, Muslims in this country, and so on. So I think there's a huge problem, and, and these are reasons, I think, why a lot of civil society groups feel uncomfortable uh, when national governments take these positions about equity at the global level, but not uh, within the country. And I think that's absolutely critical, and, and now that you've talked of it, I must say that within the SDGs, Social exclusion is again one of the big misses. We have talked of uh, uh, poverty, we have talked of inequality, but social exclusion has not been adequately highlighted. I think that this whole discourse of dignity, which was a critical discourse uh, uh, globally also, has been kind of sidelined now. But you see, yes, sorry. Can we? <laughs> you know, they say. We have to bring the, in the all Dalits. the panelists. The Dalits, the Dalits. You see, I think part of the reason is that the Dalits have extracted it from the system. It was not given to them. It was their population numbers, it was the democratic process which enabled them to extract it from the system and that is why people are shy about it right from Mumbai. As, as, a, as a moderator, I'm not allowed to take positions since all the positions are equally important. But uh, at the same time, I think considering what we are seeing in the United States, especially the affirmative distraction, the long shadow of police brutality on race and, and discrimination, I think it's extremely important to also recognize for our constitutional author or the vibrant Dalit rights movement, all that has happened. And I think probably it's, it's remiss not to be taking pride in all that affirmative action, especially in the era of affirmative distraction. Um, Vidisha, your take on India's pitch and participation on the same day that the Pope spoke on 25th. 
See, I think um, on pitch and participation, I think to a certain extent we are saying, you know, what is what what globally uh, we want people to hear us say. But my um, proof the, of the pudding. The proof, yes, absolutely. And the, the the question is going to be, how do we take it forward going from here? Because if we are serious about tackling inequality, whether it's you know social exclusion or gender-based inequality, or or inequality that is being perpetuated because of you know rapid urbanization, etc., then we are going to need to be looking at how we measure and track. Uh, progress, how we program based on that evidence quite differently. So the tagline of leave no one behind. Leave no one behind has, has got to be, and I think again here we've got to be a bit disruptive in our thinking. We've got to be disruptive in what we want to count, how we count it, and who we involve in the counting of it. And that for me is the big question. Uh, going forward. That's actually a perfect segue. We have an episode completely dedicated to counting matters and data accountability and the new disease of censorship of inconvenient public survey findings. Please stay tuned for that also. Samir, CBDR, India's pitch and participation. No, so I, I think we don't have too much time, so let me just three um, telegraphic uh, thoughts. One, uh, there are two distinct challenges for India. First, finding space for the global south in global governance and it will have to jostle and fight for that space. It's not going to be seated easily. It's a long battle ahead and it's going to be commensurate with what we do. As our economy grows, you will find people being more accepting, more accepting of us. But that is not the issue here. India has to be different from the earlier uh, oligarchs of the global system and it must ensure that as it creates space, those who are still 20 years behind us are also uh, allowed into that tent. And I think that must be India's difference, otherwise it's status quo, zero-sum game. Second, telegraphic point. I again don't see any uh, uh, contradiction in demanding equity overseas even as we struggle to give it at home. I think those two processes are independent. I think the, the national process of equity has to be far more robust and championed by people like us. But when we go overseas demanding equity, it's a different exercise. We must not confuse the two. We are creating sovereign space and then we are fighting to redistribute it well. I think that's, there are two different objectives here. So I don't think there's a contradiction of India being strong in equity overseas while failing to deliver at home. I'm not saying that should be pardonable, but that is for us to correct at home. That one, is not one, one sentence. And, th and, th and third telegraphic point on, on uh, CBDR. I think it's... It's uh, the, the current INDC commitment that India provides is, I, I think, one of India's best climate propositions till date. It has spoken green. It has done what it needs to do for its lifeline energy. It has uh, sharply uh, uh, identified lifestyle as a culprit. It has demanded greater action from the rich. It has promised uh, to increase its green installations five times. It has identified its consumption to grow four times, which means that 60 to 70% of energy growth will still take place from fossil fuels. And it has identified this promise uh, to be predicated on transfer of technologies and financial flows. It has captured all of India's uh, 1992, uh, fr from the 1992 days, uh, India's um, positions in a futuristic conversation. India has done well with this documentation, but I think the, the next five years, as we move to 2020, there will have to be side agreements created around finance, around technology, around intellectual property, around innovation, around uh, technology transfer that we will have to work hard to create. India will have to come forward and create institutions at home to be able to do this. one sentence. I think the important point is, again, that what Samir was just saying, that India is not just focusing on one, one, uh, one negotiation. Prime Minister Modi has raised the issue of technology transfer in the G20 last year. It is, uh, they have prepared a paper. 
uh, energy access for all. It is coming up next month in the G20 meeting. So he's taking that stand. The, 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 the second issue, I think very important issue is that, <coughs> that what we forget sometimes is that, that this is the first time in terms of climate policy that it is responding to the national transformation or national needs rather than responding to outside pressure Correct. or or being drafted only to meet a conference. Let this me is stop the first you time. there. We have two okay. dedicated episodes uh -huh. on climate. We'll bring back and we'll have repeat guests. So please stay tuned. Having said that, on the uh, fit for purpose, we've heard in New York about the concerns both from civil society and think tanks and analysts and even academia about the overpresence of private finance, about how global goals as a term has also been now copyrighted in an unheard of first move by Richard Curtis's company. And for our listeners, those of you who do not know, Richard Curtis is the filmmaker of Four Weddings and a Funeral fame. And his company, Project Everyone, has now copyrighted Global Goals, which is the short public name for sustainable development and goals. And it's probably its funeral. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's cheeky Samir Saran is butting in. So Amitav has actually been one of the persons who's been red flagging the lack of financing conversations around SDGs and how there's a big overarching fear of uh, privatization of the goals also. So what do you think of this whole private finance, overpresence of private finance, Barbara Adams' book, which we will also be plugging, fit for whose purpose, and the overpresence of private finance? What do you think of that? So you've already said it uh, in terms of obviously it's quite a shame. I've worked with Richard Curtis, but it is quite a shame that... Uh, so in the spirit of... <laughs> Public disclosure, yeah. we must appreciate the fact that Amitabh is yeah. also coming so, out. So, but, but it is quite a shame that you can patent something as, uh, universal. as universal. universal, which is which was considered as an ambition to change the discourse of uh, humankind, and that's been patented by one filmmaker. So that's quite a shame. Uh, coming to your core question, I do think that there, there are two questions here. One, the larger question of financing for development. And that certainly is a big question in which I think we saw the roadblocks that we uh, saw in Addis Ababa. And again, in the SDGs, that's a big miss. And that's something which we had been demanding for a long time, that we need to bring in a rights discourse. And once you bring in a rights discourse, the central role of the state would have been clearly uh, underscored. However, uh, that's not happened. And therefore, in the entire SDGs, which talks a very transformative language, when it really comes to means of implementation, it very comfortably talks of, of uh, private philanthropies and, and private actors and so on. And it, history has taught us that they have never really come forward in bringing in the public goods, in, in, in ensuring uh, uh, basic rights for particularly the poorest of the poor. So that's one big issue on which we do need to uh, continue our struggle. I think the second is also the capture uh, of the UN itself by, by, by the private actors. You know, it, it was quite shocking, let, let me say again, and, and I must again say uh, that I do work with the Gates Foundation also, but the 2013 uh, UN uh, General Assembly, which was again dedicated to MDGs, uh, can you imagine that there were five speakers or six speakers, four of them were heads of states, and the other two remaining spots were given to just one family. And, and anybody Mr. could guess, Mrs. Miss, yes, Mrs. and Mr. Gates. Uh, so you do look at how there's been a gradual but complete capture 
of the UN by the private actors. I am told the budget of, of, of um, FAO uh, on agriculture is less than the budget of Gates. So again, going back to the conversation we have had, that there is a, a very critical need for fundamentally restructure, even the financing of the UN. As in you really don't have now UN which is independent, they were dependent on projects, they're dependent on, on private uh, philanthropists. So both these conversations are very, very critical. If we need to look at SDGs as universal goals, we need to ensure that these are really public uh, goals, states take responsibility of this. For our listeners, this has been a recurring theme of conversation across all the four episodes till now. That is what are non-negotiable uh, global goods and public goods. We've talked about law and order, vaccination research. United Nations is actually one of the non-negotiable global public good. It's a common global common good. But as Amitabh said, there's this incursion, deep incursion of private finance, which is playing out in multiple ways. Bidisha, SAVE has been a big advocate of public-funded uh, health, public-funded education, public-funded social protection, public-financed United Nations also? Well, I think we look at it slightly differently. There are two things I want to say. I think there is no question about the fact that the state is ultimately responsible for public service delivery and needs to invest heavily and take responsibility for that. So based on that, our, uh, our asks and our advocacy is very much around the state taking responsibility and you know sort of increasing their share of budget and not just increasing the share of budget, but how the the budget is spent on things like education, health, etc. When it comes to private financing, and given that we are we are in a globalized world where we can no longer, if we, frankly, if we are talking about active citizenship and we are talking about development, it's everybody's game. We can't then say that it's restricted only to the governments and civil society. Private sector is very much a part of citizens, and they are they are free to engage in it. But I think we've got to be careful about the regulation of that, understanding the motivation behind it, and picking our partners carefully. And that is a piece, I think, that is currently missing completely. I don't think there's any regulation of the private sector, whether, it whether we look at health or education, etc. So if you look at a lot of low-cost education schools, for example, where they're charging fees, you'd still find appalling quality. So at the end of the day, if you're saying that the government is providing really bad quality, you know, the, the education quality is not great, and you have a similar private school, a low-fee private school, which is providing poor quality education, then who's regulating that? And how are we regulating that? So my question is more against saying that um, public financing is necessarily bad. It's really how we regulate and make them as accountable and responsible for what they are spending in, in the space of public goods. Mr. Sanwal, what is the fundamental nature of UN? With three things, three things. Finance. UN finance, we need to be very clear. The regular budget of the United Nations is one quarter the budget for peacekeeping. And that is itself nearly a one third of what goes through outside the budget, that is extra, uh, extra budgetary resources. So most of the money, almost all the money for programs of the United Nations comes outside the regular budget through what is called trust funds. The donors want to give it directly for a particular program, which they direct and control to particular agencies. It is not approved in a democratic manner within the United Nations. That is the first fundamental issue. So, and this issue has been going on right since the, well, for more than 50 years. There's some notion of a Tobin tax. You know, you trans tra tax international transactions. So there is automaticity in the money coming in. It comes into the general kitty, where they're democratically decided by what they call the fifth committee. But, that's, but that has not happened so far, and it is not going to happen.
the donors are not going to seed money. And also country governments are defaulting now? No, no, that's not the issue, not anymore. If you look at the, I think it's very instructive. If you look at the position papers of the various governments or articles, say in foreign affairs, of how the United States, Europe and other countries look upon this 70 years. The key thing you get on finance is that almost all the papers, whether any statements or papers, the underlying theme is we pay all the money and these guys make a disruption in the, because of their one country, one vote. This doesn't make sense. That is the theme. The theme from the other side, the developmentary country side is it is not democratically decided what is going on. So the, the key issue again comes down to the United States quite rightly, I would say, saying that if I pay 28% of the budget for peacekeeping, I must have the major say. Now, Prime Minister Modi is saying, if I contribute the troops, then I must have a major say. At least the conversation has begun. You had, take this example of what happened last week, uh, two weeks back, 40,000, 30 to 40,000 troop commitments have been made. 8,000 from China, 850 from India, 370 from the United Kingdom. And yet they have most of the advisors and the committee people. That's one. Two, I think the probably private sector financing needs to be linked up with CSR. The concept of CSR. And we need to regulate it in a way. But the most important point I want to make is that this conversation has become outdated because now China has come forward with the Asia Investment Bank, Infrastructure Investment Bank, and the New Development Bank. And they are saying, here is another pot of money. The thing we need to look at is what are the rules or what are the formalities that they are going to have to push the money in, into the developing countries. So far, they have said it's going to be lean, green, and clean. But is that so going that to affect the nature of UN? As in, that's, that's it will a affect the nature of the United, United Nations because you have a competition now. They, they are, that is not the only game in town. And if the Chinese have started this question of being a competitor to the, to the World Bank and the IMF, this time, I, I was there last week, and they're already talking about, they're already talking about new multilateralism. So when China, now next year China is going to chair the G20, it is going to talk about new multilateralism. They are saying, okay, you can't, we can't reform the UN, you won't let us do it, we're going to set up alternate structures, or we're going to start setting up at least an alternative conversation outside the United Nations to push the United Nations. So, so taking off from where um, uh, Mr. Sanwal has left off, I think we are experiencing now a new uh, decade of what is, uh, of creation of a new uh, form of global governance. Uh, the, at the core of which will be two central clusters. The first is the clusters of the 20th century, who are unlikely to go away because they still control innovation, financing. Bureaucracy don't die. Value. They don't die. And that, in many ways, was called the Washington Consensus. Um, the Bretton Woods, the UN system dominated by the, uh, by the uh, Atlantic allies. And now the creation of what I call the Beijing Consensus, which has the New Development Bank, the Asian Infrastructure Bank, the One Belt, One Road Initiative, the 60 countries where they're creating infrastructure. South, three billion for the South-South Fund. The South-South Fund. So multiple, multiple Chiang Mai Initiative, the internationalization of the Yuan, India's increasing reliance on commercial loans from China for its infrastructure projects, etc., etc. So you have two central clusters coming in, Beijing Consensus and the Washington Consensus. None of these consensus, uh, clusters are virtuous. Let's be very clear. They are working on clearly <laughs> on self-interest. Now, now and, and let me conclude my thing by saying this. I think we have misplaced expectations from a system that was devised and will always be managed by countries that have a national consensus of mercantile capitalism. They don't believe in social redistribution fundamentally. So the countries which control global systems have national consensus 
on market, free markets, on mercantile capitalism and in some cases in Europe, social markets and regulated capitalism. But markets are the mantra for all of these countries who manage global governance. Communism lost the war in 1980s. If you want social redistribution in the form of uh, the, the Karl Marx um, theories of uh, the Frankfurt School, you are not going to get it. Let's forget about that. Now let's go to the second option. The next best option clearly is that how do you create sensible regulations, auditing and verification processes which allow private money to be directed to specific purposes where conflict of interest does not happen. I think that is the only option. Now to expect national governments to create infrastructure, we are living in a fool's paradise. The Keynesian days are over. The largest part of national wealth is outside the national budget. When our prime minister goes with his briefcase uh, to the Indian parliament, he has roughly 30% of India's GDP in his hand. 70% of the Indian GDP resides outside his purview. We have to include that 70% in this development transformation that we seek and unless we can create sensible ways of including the 70% in this conversation, the tail is wagging the dog. For our listeners, I think this is precisely the reason why this series started. It's, we're not even skinning, we're not even scratching the skin. And with just the number of acronyms and the initiatives that Samir has listed in his last response, it seems there is actually room for actually starting one whole more series. But since practically everybody around the table also talked about the importance of regulation and the fact that we live in the times of co-opted and reluctant regulation, perhaps it's also another agenda why people and media as a public good and uh, citizenry and the global progressive, I won't say elites, but progressives can come together. In one sentence, Amitav, going forward, what next? That's on SDGs or? or <laughs> SDGs, yeah. One sentence yeah. is SDGs. a challenge. <laughs> okay, so on, on SDGs, I think it's... It's actually a sentence. It can be a paragraph also. It would be, as in, because uh, I, I think uh, listening to Samir, it's both inspiring. It's a salivating, one-on-one -on -one sparring going on. And if you go back to the first episode, we witnessed something very similar between Mihir Sharma of Business Standard and Nitin Desai, another career diplomat. Okay. Yes. So, no, I was just saying that it is uh, very inspiring listening to Samir. I would just request him and all of us to up our ambition a little more. Let's not say that the idea of redistributive justice has been lost. It's a cause that we need to all work for. And again, just one more caveat to what uh, you just summarized. I'm, I would certainly want the private sector to be far more regulated, but would still want the state to play a far more central role. By saying that 70% uh, is with the private sector and, and no, others. No, not private sector, no, so other, uh, other, other, other than the right. state. Uh, I, I still think that... Uh, doesn't diminish the state's role. Doesn't role. diminish the responsibility of the state. To create or the, cent yeah. or the centrality yeah. of the state role. I think that's very, very critical. And let's continue our struggle. Let's see how SDG could be one of those tools for uh, achieving distributive justice and ensuring that commons remain commons 
and they're not privatized for private profit. In one minute, quickly. Yes, let me respond. All of everybody is important. Okay. Okay, somebody is forcing the clockwise, anti-clockwise to be messed up. I've been victimized twice so now let me let me interview. Let me just tell you, let me explain through an example what I was trying to say about the role of the state. America roughly spends $30,000 per year on education of children. And this is an average, 80,000 for Stanford, 10,000 for some uh, city school, community college. community college. I'm saying let's take around a figure of $30,000. Europe spends around 15,000 euro, uh, similarly. Let's assume that we don't want American style education for all of our people. We don't want European style education for all of our people. We want Indian style Jugaad education. So let's assume that we have a modest ambition of spending $1,000 one thirtieth of America, one thousand dollar per child on India. So let me tell, let me answer uh, Amita through this simple example. I have two hundred twenty million teenagers today. I have between five to twenty to four hundred fifty million people who require some form of education. That is my basket today, and it is going to peak at five fifty before it starts stabilizing and then coming down. So between now and the next twenty years, at any given point of time, I will have more than four fifty million people. I spend one thousand on each one of them. It is $450 billion today. The Prime Minister and his Finance Minister carry that amount in the budget. So if they have to educate every child, which is a public good, education to a young person, the entire Indian budget is over. So therefore, Indian budget cannot respond to development challenges. What they need to do is create the education landscape that will bring in investments, that will encourage people to create private solutions, that will encourage grassroots um, training institutions to come up, that will create more Educate India and Teach India and Learn India and Forget India initiatives. But what I'm trying to say here is that education, the same situation is with health, same situation is with roads, same situation is with ports. Thank you. Well, uh, let me just end there. You see, I think this is a golden opportunity because for the first time, because of ecological limits, and that is the importance of climate change for the conversation we are having. Planetary boundaries. Yes, because it's the first time that redistribution has come on the global agenda. People are talking about lifestyles, people are talking... Even the United States now, you have publications saying the food that you eat contributes 15% to the global greenhouse gases, you waste 30%, and it also contributes to GHGs. So that conversation has That's come cool. on the table. Now it is for us to shape it whichever way we want to go. That is the first point. But the opportunity is there for the first time. Now China is taking it forward by saying ecological civilization. So they are linking up the social and economic side and environmental side. Now we need to do something of that kind and move beyond Swachh Bharat and smart cities to start talking about smart low carbon cities and citizen behavior etc. That's one point. The second point I think is that we have been so, I mean Lord Macaulay was right, our minds have been so obsessed with what the wisdom that has come out from the West that we are not looking for basic alternatives and or, or questioning the basic framework itself. Now, what is the state? We are looking at the state in terms of democracy, in terms of elections, elected representatives. But the state includes municipal bodies too. Now, China, China's national target has now become national target for each municipality. Beijing has made a commitment that I will peak by 2020. So that conversation has gone down. The CBDR I mean, at home. At home. CBDR look, at this home. This is what you have to do. Beijing is a very high, uh, Shanghai and Beijing are very highly developed people. They will peak at 2020, other municipalities later on. So that conversation is percolated to that level. Now it is for us to take it down. And we are fortunate in the strength of the media, the strength of the judiciary, 
and civil society, and so civil to society. NGOs for every policeman. So they have to be, they have to be, <laughs> no, the, they have to be part of this conversation and we have to strengthen those institutions which we have, which is our strength and not copy what is happening in the West. That's the first. The third point I'm saying is, let us look at what distinguishes us from the Chinese and the Americans and the Europeans. I think one is our culture, of course, and the other is our, our, our services economy or the internet. Now, we have this Aadhaar base. We can very easily get down to individual-based monitoring, what is happening to each individual, not what is happening to each sectors. You can see the revolution that is taking place with the mobile phone, that now cameras are recording police brutality. For me, coming from the Indian Administrative Service, this is something new. It never happened before. The, that is the, the brutality that is the control. The of it? That is the control. That is the huge control that you found in this Mumbai case of the woman being beaten up by women cops and the debate that is going on. The police inquiry says two women repeatedly hit her. The public is saying it's not the repeated hitting, it's even touching her should be the issue there. So you see the way the debate is changing. And this is, so what I am seeing really is that the opportunity has come with this global debate. We need to take it much beyond that. The boundaries that have been More set ambitions. by the United Nations thinking and there is no limit to what we can do. Look at, the, look at the potential here. Since I have not been able to actually break the menace of all male panels. No, but I'm very but pleased that I get to have the final word. Absolutely. Oh, the last absolutely. Word. absolutely. I'm very the last pleased word. about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, for me, and for me, the SDGs, what it boils down to is accountability. And this is something that Amina Mohabbat, who's sort of, you know, been, she's, she's like the, 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 person when it comes to the For SDGs. For our listeners, she is the SDGs advisor to the UN Secretary General, uh, Amina Mohammed. And, and, and according to her and according to me, we are only three-fourths of the job is done. The fourth piece, which is the accountability piece, has still got to be fixed, and it's got to be fixed for the governments, it's got to be fixed for the UN more generally, it's got to be fixed for our civil society, it's got to be fixed for the private sector. And that, to me, is going to be the defining piece of whether the SDGs are a meaningful framework for us to deliver on and achieve real justice and equity and development for the most marginalized. I could not have summed it up better. Yeah, but, but not I could not have summed it. I, I thought I had the power. I, I could not. Well, we'll, we'll have to, we really have to edit it now. I could not have summed it up be better. Since this is the first post-summit reactive, we are also presenting to you all the 17 goals that the world has committed to, including our Prime Minister. The 17 Sustainable Development Goals are 1. End poverty in all its forms everywhere. 2. End hunger, achieve food security and improve nutrition and promote sustainable agriculture. 3. Ensure healthy lives and promote well-being for all at all ages. 4. Ensure inclusive and equitable quality education and promote lifelong learning opportunities for all. 5. Achieve gender equality and empower all women and girls. 6. Ensure the availability and sustainable management of water and sanitation for all. 7. Ensure access to affordable, reliable, sustainable and modern energy for all. 8. Promote sustained, inclusive and sustainable economic growth, full and productive employment and decent work for all. 9. Build resilient infrastructure, promote inclusive and sustainable industrialization and foster innovation. 10. Reduce inequality within and among countries. 11. Make cities and human settlements inclusive, safe, resilient and sustainable. 12. Ensure sustainable consumption and production patterns. 13. 
take urgent action to combat climate change and its impacts. 14. Conserve and sustainably use the oceans, seas and marine resources for sustainable development. 15. Protect, restore and promote sustainable use of terrestrial ecosystems, sustainably manage forests, combat desertification and halt and reverse land degradation and halt biodiversity loss. 16. Promote peaceful and inclusive societies for sustainable development, provide access to justice for all and build effective, accountable and inclusive institutions at all levels. 17. Strengthen the means of implementation and revitalize the global partnership for sustainable development. And a message from Anoyara Khatun, the youth delegate from India, who is also an, an, an anti-child trafficking campaigner from the Indian state of West Bengal. News Laundry is extremely honored to have Onoyara Khatun with us. She was one of the youth delegates at the UN SDG Summit. She's 18 years old. She comes from West Bengal and she's been campaigning against child trafficking. She was one of the selected few who also presented the final draft of the SDG Summit to the world leaders. And if you do a Google search, you'll also see her on the Guardian front page. So Onoyara, what are your aspirations from your own Chief Minister, Mamata Banerjee, our Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, and the global leaders about the SDG Summit? I am the first minister of the government of Bangladesh. We are the first minister of the যেটা চাই যে যে শতরটা গোল আমাদের জন্য তৈরি হয়েছে যেটা প্রত্যেকটা দেশের জন্য তৈরি হয়েছে তার মধ্যে থেকে তিনটে গোল বড় করে দেখা হয়েছে যেটা হলো গরিবি আবহাওয়া পরিবর্তন আর হেল তো আমি চাই এইগুলো ওই তিনটে গোল যাতে ঠিকঠাকভাবে প্রয়োগ ওনারা করেন সেটাই বলতে চাই আর শতরটা গোল যাতে ভালোভাবে ভালোভাবে কার্যকারিত হয় আমি এই আশাটাই ওনাদের কাছে করতে চাই আরেকটা যেটা যে আমরা যখন ইউরোপিয়ান কমিশনারদের সঙ্গে যখন মিট করেছিলাম তখন ওনারা বলেছিলেন যে আগামী 10 বছর পর ঢাকা হয়তো আমরা দেখতে পাবো যে ভারতবর্ষকে আর আমাদের সাহায্য করতে হবে না ভারতবর্ষ অন্য অন্য দেশের সমতুল্য হয়ে যেতে পারে তো আমি চাই যেন Thank you very much. So that was Anoyara Khatun, the Indian Youth Delegate to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals Summit from West Bengal. She is a campaigner against child trafficking and child marriage. She just shared her aspirations from the uh, Chief Minister Mamta Banerjee, uh, our Prime Minister Narendra Modi and the global leader. She said much thought and action has gone into the 17 goals and the leader should come up for themselves, for the children of the world to deliver on these goals. The three goals that she felt were really important was on universal health coverage, was also 
on climate change and on against poverty. They go around completely eliminating extreme poverty by 2030. She also shared her meeting with the European Commission delegation at the United Nations in New York, where it seems the European Commission representative told Anoyara that soon they're expecting India is going to make the transition to not just developed, but donor country and would not be recipient of any bilateral aid. And she is convinced that this is going to happen sooner than later. While there were rich political moorings to this conversation, as a moderator, I'm not allowed to take political ideological position either, but I cannot let this pass. And this is for you, Samir, and I hope we are getting you back again. My favorite quote of John Maynard Keynes, the only purpose of economic forecasting is to make astrology look respectable. That's right. Thank you for listening to News Laundry Podcast, Global Summits, Where Are We Going? We would like to thank our collaborator, Save the Children India, the leading nonprofit dedicated to children for their support in bringing this program to you. This is part of their global campaign, Action 2015, to build public awareness and pressure on world leaders for just global deals for a just future for all. This episode was produced by Karthik Nijhavan from Team News Laundry. In the next episode, we'll be discussing universal social protection drill or the data and censorship drama. Which one exactly? You'll have to tune in to know. Hence, please stay tuned. We would love to hear from you. Give us your feedback. Follow us on Twitter. Like us on Facebook. And please support independent media so you can decide where are we going. This is Biraz Swine signing off for News Laundry. Catch all new episodes of Global Summits Where Are We Going on newslaundry.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook.